0: Hello, welcome to today's podcast. It's our great pleasure today to have with us Carl Moriety and John Roberts of RAFA. Founded by Simon Mottram in London in 2004, RAFA makes the world's finest cycling clothing. And for 15 years, their products have redefined comfort, performance and style for cyclists from absolute beginners through to world tour professionals. John, Carl, hello. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, Debbie. Hey, Debbie, great to be here.
0: Um, John, could, could you just give us a little insight into your role within the RAFA group, please?
1: Sure, so I've worked for RAFA for just over two years. Um, my job title is Head of Product, and I'm essentially responsible for um, the product strategy and the direction of the product range um, and the commercial information, um, or the commercials around the product range as well. So I create the product strategy and product briefs, essentially.
0: That's great, thank you. Carl?
2: Yeah, uh, so I'm the product design director. And um, so I oversee uh, product design uh, within RAFA and then also uh, material development, R&D, and our sample room.
0: Great, thank you. And of course, both keen cyclists. It's compulsory, isn't it? <laughs>
2: Yes. It definitely <laughs> makes life a lot easier. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, thank you so much for your time today. Um, okay, we'll crack on with the first question. So when when was Rafa founded and why was it founded?
1: What so Rafa, story? Um, as you pointed out earlier, it was founded in 2004, so um, mm-hmm. 16 years ago by um, Salman Mottram. And essentially it was founded from from a, a place of frustration, I guess, from a, you know, a passion for a sport that was really underserved in the market. There was a real lack of innovation and, and desirability around product. And the sport itself was really misunderstood and underloved. Yet when you really dig into the sport, you know, to, to actually partake in it itself is massively rewarding and broad and and really quite um, accessible once you get into it. Um, but it's also full of really powerful, incredible stories and, and characters as well, which were really kind of not, these stories just weren't being told and these characters weren't really visible. Um, I think Rafa has, you know, has, has always taken probably the more, the harder way of doing things, but, but ultimately the more rewarding path. And, and it was launched completely different to anything else. It was launched with an ex- exhibition called Kings of Pain so it was an exhibition with photography, with stories about people within the sport, and a single product, which was a, a Merino jersey. And this jersey um, itself, you know, relatively basic, but very, you know, very different to anything mm-hmm. that was out there at the time, very premium. Um, um, but yeah, it was a single product that quickly grew into a into a small collection of products over the next few seasons. Um And the business itself um, was quite difficult to get off the ground at the start. Um, In 2004, it was quite unheard of to have a men's only premium cycling brand um, purely online. So this was a time when, you know, online shopping wasn't, you know, wasn't as widely used as it was now. So it took a lot of convincing to get a relatively small amount of investment Um, which inevitably came from quite a large pool of people and to start Mm -hmm. off with Um, yeah that's kind of where it came from I guess and and you can still really see that in in the company now
0: so the business started online it didn't start with a store
1: it started online yeah
0: that's great Um, that's good okay and you have a you have a very unique company culture don't you
1: It's yeah, I think a lot of great companies, you know, you walk in there, they do feel different to other companies. And I would say Rafa is, you know, it has got that about it. I'll never forget working, walking into the office and, and for the first time. It was about a year before I started at Rafa and instantly I, I knew I wanted to work there. It was like, wow, there's, you know, there's other people like me in the world. There's other people that like cycling weird' Japanese brands. This is, this is great. <laughs> um, but it is, it has got that kind of, it has got that thing about it. When you walk in there, it is very unique and, and quite recently we, yeah, exactly. And the, the people in culture team within Rafa have done a really good job of trying to articulate what makes our culture. Um, and there's this kind of 14 pillars, which I won't go through all of them, but essentially. You know, a lot of it is, is about loving the sport um, and loving the things about the sport that make it um, really, really compelling. Um, and there's still that, that kind of that culture of not taking the easy route, but taking the one that's going to get us to where we need to go. So we make a lot of really kind of bold decisions as well. And it's all subordinate to the passion for the sport and ultimately trying to mm-hmm. grow the sport. Um, in the ways that we can affect.
0: Okay, so what to what do you attribute the the growth of the cycling industry? And to combine two questions in one, really, what's the, what's the current size of the uh, the cycling industry? As you say, it's, it's so, grown so much.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it, it's quite, you know, it's always difficult to get exact figures, but mm-hmm. where we've got to the the cycling um, apparel and footwear industry is worth around six and a half to seven billion pounds, wow. um, and that's from lots of sources of information. and And around two thirds of that is is road cycling. Around a third of it is is mountain biking. And this is specifically apparel and footwear. Um, so yep. people generally spend more on clothing. Um, within roads than they do in mountain biking. And and there's lots of reasons within that, um, which we have, yeah, we've, we've kind of started looking into over the past couple of years as well, and, and found a real opportunity as well in, in the mountain biking space. Um, but we tend to focus on, you know, for our kind of customer, we're not necessarily, um, the brand that people go to when they first get into cycling. So, so we, we, we're probably a second or third, Jersey purchase. Um, We don't Mm -hmm. sell in too much wholesale. So, you know, it's still vast majority of our business is is direct to consumer and that won't change. And we don't sell our product in in some of the big online um, retailers that a lot of people go to potentially for a first Jersey purchase. So we tend to focus on highly engaged road cyclists and and that market is a lot smaller. Um, So we estimate that to be just under, um a billion pounds um Mm -hmm. but that's kind of yeah that's really where we we kind of focus
0: and why do you think it's grown so quickly why i mean it's such a huge sport now
1: yeah i think um i think there's there's lots of things so there's quite big you know if you look at commuting for example a lot there's a lot more people choosing to to get to work, especially in cities um, on a mm-hmm. bike um, for various reasons, for overcrowding, you know, not being able to drive or, or wanting to drive, not wanting to get on public transport. And essentially it's it's a lot more pleasant way of getting around um, a city. Um, but there's, there's been a lot of big events as well. I think specifically in the UK, the Olympics in, in 2012 was a real big accelerator for, for cycling.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, you know, the UK did really well. We had some big characters there, so big characters like Bradley Wiggins, who became kind of household names. Um, and then there's more kind of high profile sponsors within the sport as well. So like team sky, um, who are you know, whether you're into cycling a lot, a lot of people have have heard of team sky and and know Mm -hmm. about their ethos and, and how they've kind of transformed the sport for good or bad. Um, but also I think there's more more and more brands now have have kind of started to to focus on cycling and you know a lot of that I, I think was well it was you know it was started by Rafa. There wasn't anything else um there before and, and Rafa have played a really key role, I think, in, in making the sport a lot more um appealing and desirable to yeah. more people. And now there are you know countless versions of um, premium cycling brands that are kind of, yeah, that are doing the same thing or, or similar things.
0: That try to imitate, but yeah, we ha- you have such a, an established culture, don't you? And a, such established following to a very clearly yeah, defined exactly. brand. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: we always try and stay ahead of the curve and try and um, reinvent ourselves and reinvent um, the sports to stay ahead of competition. Um, we don't do that to stay ahead of competition, but I think the reason that's how we do stay ahead of competition is cause we yeah, are.
0: Lead from, um, lead from the front with your kind of inherent creative culture, really So you're constantly yeah, evolving, yeah, exactly. aren't you? Yeah, that's great. So so speaking of, um, as we were before, of of accelerating the the growth of the the apparel cycling marketplace, can we touch on um, sports performance? Um, Carl, you probably have something to add here. And how sports textiles actually impact performance and how that has changed over the last few years.
2: Yeah, Um, I think our primary focus has always been on on comfort and how we can enhance comfort as an element of performance. And so it's a lot of focus on thermoregulation, how do Mm -hmm. we keep the body at the optimal temperature, and then on moisture management and how do we um, keep the humidity level um, at the optimum level one for thermoregulation and then also just for general comfort. Um, unfortunately, it's really hard to change um, the dynamics of human physiology. And so mm-hmm. we still have to work within, within those bounds. But um, I think we continue to find, um, find ways to, to enhance that. I think also um, on the competitive side of things, um, there's also the ability to affect um, aerodynamics and cycling is a sport of marginal gains where um, mm. as speeds and distances increase, these minor reductions in drag or fatigue can really have significant um, differences on, on the outcome of, of, of races and people's experience.
0: Like they're literally shading seconds really, but it's the difference between a, a win and a lose situation.
2: Yeah, I mean, over a three-hour effort, if you can put in half a percent less effort than somebody else or go, um, you know, a percentage point faster than that actually, like, um, adds up and accumulates over over those times and can make the difference. That's
0: great. So tell me, Cole, how has how the fiber composition of uh, the textiles that you're using changed over the years?
2: Um, I think the big thing we see right now is across the industry is a real focus on um, reducing the impact uh, or the footprint of the um, of the raw materials going into um, products. Um, and so we see a huge effort in um, refining the reliability and quality of recycled materials. Um, Mm -hmm. into the supply chain and we see that across polyester and nylon Um, and then we're also seeing now um, a lot more um, bio-based polymers coming into um, commercial production um, and again helping us like move away from um, a petroleum-based. Yeah, um, Huge developments
0: there aren't there? Lots of amazing things to arrive in the next couple of years when you can get the volumes to the acceptable volumes for, for you to go into production with them?
2: Yeah, and I think there's something around getting um, to an economy or to economies of scale and then also just getting to a consistency of quality. Um, but there's definitely um, lots of interesting things going on there.
0: That's great. So you see sustainability being a huge part of your your clients' requirements moving forward for the next it, well, from now onwards, really forever, becoming yeah, more and I more think, sustainable as a brand.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. I think that's just become the baseline now, and there's just an expectation mm-hmm. that um, brands should um, should be looking to um, to contribute um, to um, a more sustainable industry. Um, because it's the right thing to do, and because we should all be motivated um, to um, reduce our impact. And I mean, especially for us, um, we our the love of the sport we have is based in being outdoors um, mm-hmm. and being in the environment. And we need um, we need moderate temperatures and clean air um, in order to be able to to enjoy the sport. And as such, we have. Um, an obligation to do all that we can to um, to make sure that we're not impacting in a negative way.
0: That's great. So do you try and um, in, in continually improve the amount of transparency in your supply chain as well so that you you can drill right back to all of those core essentials as they, as they move through the supply chain so that you yeah, can trace the polyester and be as sustainable as possible?
2: Yeah, um, and I think a lot of that for us is based around relationships um, with our suppliers. Um, and um, as an organization, we've always uh, taken the, I guess, the long road with our suppliers. We have a very um, stable supply chain and um, strong um, relationships uh, with the companies that um that we work with. And so part of that is that it gives us really good visibility. um, And I think um, faith and confidence in in our supply chain so that um, we can uh, see um, where we're making improvements. um, And we can also see where we need to make changes.
0: That's great. So it becomes more of a a collaborative um, working relationship too.
2: Yeah, definitely. Sharing
0: information the, and developments and new technologies for the future.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think we we have a focus on on choosing um, partners uh, that we can collaborate with um, and that um, we can make long term um, uh, or we can undertake long term projects with.
0: So uh, moving on to the next next question, the the rise of customization. Um, without question personalization. And how do you think that has redefined cycling apparel?
2: Yeah, I think it's interesting because club kit um, has always Mm -hmm. been a big part of cycling culture. And so I think in many ways, the cycling industry has actually been ahead perhaps of of other parts of um, the apparel industry. Um, and this idea of being able to put together a custom design for, um, sort of, um, small, medium and large groups of people who like to ride together, um, has existed for a long time. And, uh, there's all this, um, there's always been business in, in catering to, to those clubs. Um, and so... Um, what we see now is with advancements in data management and supply chain, we're able to get that number or um, well, the minimum number of products down smaller and smaller.
0: So what's your minimum order? Is it four garments for a team? It's, it's quite an incredible achievement that in, um, in such a supply chain, isn't it? To do that, you utilize various digital technologies, don't you?
2: Yeah. So we have um, an online design tool, um, mm-hmm. which actually allows um, customers to go um, online and um, utilize the tool so that they can actually create their own designs um, onto, uh, templates from a large number of products that we make. Um, and then we have, um, a visualization tool, which allows them to see how that design will come to life on the various products. Um, and then we have a team, um, working behind that to, to proof and check that the, the product will work. And then we have an eight week turnaround where people can, um, we can turn those designs around for people and. Um, and have them out riding.
0: Incredible, isn't it? How 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 simple it's becoming, <laughs> or how, how simple it looks
2: <laughs> from, yeah. the, from the front end.
0: Yeah. It's, it's yeah. an
2: amazing supply chain that runs behind yes. that to be able to take yes. designs from, um, you know, from all over the world, um, and to um, into many different fab- fabrics and different sizes and. Um, and to be able to get them uh, uh, through the system, so on and delivered um, in eight weeks, I think is, is yeah. um, an amazing achievement. Um, and the and- only way to
0: do that, I guess, is to digitize that supply chain, isn't it? To, to digitize as, as many of those processes as possible.
2: Yeah, definitely. And the data management, I mean, I think the, the product visualization side of things, is mm-hmm. a big breakthrough in terms of giving people um, creative control um, and confidence in um, in the design work and the um, product that they'll receive. And then the other part of that is obviously the data management side of it in terms of how do you process the orders and how do you take those orders bring them into the system, make them a commercial transaction, but then also make them a manufacturing transaction where that artwork can get laid out um, on the correct fabric and the correct patterns be cut and then bundled um, into garments and then sewn together um, and then end up being sent to the right place at the end of all of that. Um, so, yeah
0: you're using a digital design workflow to do that very first start of that process then. So even when, um, the, the client uses the, uh, the customized portion of your, your portfolio of what you offer, that will then that automatically goes into, um, I guess a web to print system when they're using templates. So there's no need or requirement for any actual physical designer to touch those orders. Is that how it works?
2: Yes, but we do have a yeah. proofing process um, where someone okay. with um, experience um, in the process um, does go through and proofs each individual design um, to make sure that um, that we are confident that the customer will be happy with the result um, and that, um, that things will work. Um, so there is still a, a human proofing process um, right. to ensure um uh, we can stand behind the um, So when it,
0: when it comes to creating your, um, John you mentioned earlier that um, you're producing two seasonal collections a year so when you come to um, working on the development of those projects um, you're using a digital workflow again there to create um, simulations of products before you move over to to approve them um, as almost as avatars really and three D modelling before you then move over to making um samples and twirls for production.
1: Yeah, I mean this is probably more your world as well, isn't it, Carl? I guess, but yeah. We we use a variation of different kind of prototypes, I guess, to make decisions on how products move through the gates. Um yeah, Cole, you, you can probably talk in a bit more depth to that.
2: Um, so pattern making in-house is done on a uh, CAD system uh, from Optitex, mm-hmm. um, which allows us to, um, well, there's two elements to it. One is a flat pattern making, which allows us to um, create our base patterns um, and store them. And then we also have a 3D visualization tool Um, which allows us to stitch those patterns together virtually um, and then uh, see how they fit onto um, various uh, sized avatars so that we can check the fit of the product virtually um, before it's sewn. Um, It's a relatively new stage for us, which we're exploring right now, um, but it has um, amazing potential for us to do stretch analysis, um, and refine um, the fit process.
0: So that, um, using the Optech software as well, of course, you can actually really fine tune that stretch and everything, can't you? By giving the, the parameters of the, the absolute parameters of that fabric and its performance, its weight, how it's gonna move, where it's gonna see tension, where you need to adjust fit. You can actually really fine tune all of those quantities, can't you?
2: Yeah, definitely variables. it has yeah it's a great analysis tool which allows you to see um how much tension a fabric is under in certain parts of the garment and also suits certain ranges of movement Um, so we can move people in and out of their riding position or from um, a relaxed riding position into a more aggressive riding position and we can see how that changes the tension um in the fabric um, across the body Um, and then from there just allows us to really refine um the, the fit of the garments.
0: So, so once you've created all of those files, then um, John, maybe um, this is a question for you. How have you um, how have you adapted the manufacturing workflow so that you um, take those digital files and then move them through your production environments? Do they remain totally digital, um, or do you split the supply chain depending on different quantities, different variables?
2: Um, I'm going to take that one again, again, I guess. Um, <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> um, so the, I'll try harder next um, time, John. <laughs> <laughs> um, so no, uh, digital file management, um, we share our files um, through a DFX format with the majority mm-hmm. of our production partners. Um, the. Production cutting varies by factory to factory. Um, and so some factories would still be hand cutting, um, in which case the files would be printed. Um, and then the paper plans, uh, paper patterns laid out over um, the fabric before cutting. Um, but then the majority would be uh, CAD cutting. And so those files um, would go through a marker maker um, to lay out the yield. Um, and the exact cutting or lay plan, um, and then they would be digitally cut. Um, great. Or, yeah.
0: So the production is as efficient as it could possibly be, which is great. So you're yes. saving fabric, you're saving time, you're saving ink, you're saving precious resources in every area. Um, and by, by controlling design right at the very beginning, you really are eliminating as much waste as possible out of the whole cycle. Which is
2: um, yeah, I think one of the biggest advantages is the ability to be able to send um, patterns back and forth instantly from um, mm-hmm. from the sample rooms uh, with our manufacturers to our sample room in London, and so we can make small adjustments to the patterns um, and and send them back instantaneously, um, and then uh, vice versa when. Uh, changes are made at production, we're able to see those um, see those changes uh, and then verify them um, before we make um, commitments to, to, to change and to move into production.
0: Fabulous. It's, um, it's amazing, isn't it, how much technology can um, readjust the whole supply chain? Incre- and yet incrementally. things can still go yeah. wrong. Things will always still go wrong. Won't <laughs> they? <laughs> but we, we learn from those mistakes, hopefully, and we don't do that again. But um, no, things will yep. always go wrong in production. But, yeah, yeah, there's no manufacturer that's perfect, is there? So There's no
2: system into, that's um, perfect.
0: No, there isn't. But we can keep fine tuning. Carl, thank you so much for your answer there. John, I think I do have a question for you. So, John, tell us, let's, um, thank you so much for your questions on production and design. Um, Carl, John, power of community. Can you tell us why um, you founded the Rafa Cycling Club and the Rafa Foundation, and give us a bit of insight into what those are?
1: Sure. Is that a good I question for you? It is. It is. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah, our our kind of vision as a company, or our purpose as a company, is to um, make cycling the most popular sport in the world. That's what we believe, and that's what we want to achieve. And you know, a key part of that, I'll, I'll talk about Rafa Cycling Club first. I think, um, yeah. you know, a key part of that is our product. And through our product, our aim is to create the ultimate riding experience. So we want whoever buys Rafa products, they they buy it because they want the best experience and our product will provide that experience for our customers. Um, and within our Rafa Cycling Club, we really want to kind of curate that that whole experience and we do that across content, we do it through, um, community. So organized rides, um, you get access to a lot of, um, to our app where you can kind of meet like-minded people, organize people rides with fellow members of the RCC, um, going to our clubhouses where you get free, uh, reduced price coffee and, and other incentives. Um, and then from a product perspective, we offer products that you can only buy through, through being a member as well. Um, so right. we call it the world's best club kit. So we, so we make club kit, we've got our own Viz ID and you can buy the club kit, but we also do lots of um, collaborations with various different brands, like um, coffee machines, for example, you know, coffee is such a big part of a raf- uh, of cycling culture. Um, so real kind of specific things that really kind of curate that whole, um, cycling experience for our best customers and people that want to be really kind of closer to our brand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so for us, it's a really, really important, um, part of our business model. Um, and the Rafa foundation as well, I guess, you know, just tying it back to that, that broader vision and, and that broader purpose for our brand, um, you know, we do genuinely believe, um, that's, that, that cycling isn't anywhere near as popular as it, as it should be. And, and we all genuinely believe like in, in the benefits and, and rewards you get from cycling, um, and whatever, you know, what better way to do that than to, to grow the sport itself. So, so we're in a you know, really kind of fortunate position to be able to donate a large sum of money every year into grassroots foundations, um, that are really, there, um, doing good for the sport and are genuinely growing the sport. Um, as an example, one of our first beneficiaries were, um, quite a small organization in, um, in New York, um, called star tax cycling. And, you know, a couple of guys that run this, this small club and they're getting kids off the street. Um, into cycling, into track cycling, and That's they started brilliant. off with a couple of kids doing it. Now there's there's hundreds of kids turn up every week. um wow. They've got like an outdoor velodrome that was just falling apart. So we we donated you know some of the money to them, and they're able to, to to maintain the velodrome and, and keep it running. So. so there's lots of small organizations like this around the world. They're genuinely doing really good and getting genuinely getting a lot more people out on their bikes um, and it's there to support those, those organizations.
0: That's fantastic. And there's lots,
1: there's lots, lots more interesting stuff coming there as well, you know, it's something that's really exciting and, and just something that really kind of ties us back up to our bigger purpose and what we want to achieve through cycling.
0: Building those foundations, like you say, building building the the future generations as well, really, with a love of sports and keeping them yeah. healthy and fit at the same time. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. All yeah, all exactly. areas of their lives, from just, you know, physical fitness to mental fitness, it goes across the whole board, doesn't it? It's great.
2: Yeah. Really, very good. Very yeah, important.
0: absolutely. Guys, that's great. Thank you so much for your fabulous answers today. I can't let either of you go. Um I've been asked to ask you this, questions, this question. So can both of you tell us, uh, which is your favorite ride? It can be anywhere and why? UK well, or abroad?
2: I'll approach. let you go first. Go so, on, uh, what would it be? Well, okay, um, to me, there is a mountain bike trail that runs across the Sunshine Coast in British Columbia, and okay. it's called Highway Highway 102.
0: Guys, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you both. I'll make sure that all your contact details are in the podcast notes and we very much look forward to speaking to you again soon and following the Rafa journey. Thank you.